Good morning, Trinity Church. It's good to see you this morning. It's always a blessing to gather with you on a Sunday morning, and it's a privilege to be a part of this church with you. For all of you who are members of Trinity Church, we look forward to seeing you tonight again at 5.30 for our members meeting. We have those every two months, and uh, we have some important business to take care of tonight, and uh, we're saying goodbye to a couple members uh, tonight, and we're also welcoming some members uh, tonight. We also have a budget to approve and other things, and so uh, if you are a member, we really look forward to seeing you there this evening. If you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here this morning. I don't know what brought you in to Trinity Church this morning, but uh, this is not an accident. God and His good and wise and sovereign providence has brought you here, and I pray that you will hear from the Lord, not from me. I'm just a guy. I want to be faithful to God's Word, but God speaks through His Word to the people gathered under His Word. That's why we come here on Sunday morning to worship Him, and part of that is listening and hearing from Him, from His Word. There are some of you this morning that are weak in faith. You are weak in faith. You are struggling, stumbling, perhaps. You need to be strengthened. There are some of you who are wandering this morning. You are heading down a road that is not good, just a few steps perhaps, or maybe you've been wandering for some time and you need to come home this morning. There are some of you who are lazy spiritually. You are sleeping, convincing yourself that it's okay, and you're lazy. You need to be provoked this morning. You need to be stirred. And then there is undoubtedly some here, there are some here this morning who are lost. You do not know Christ. You do not honor His Word. Your life is built around yourself and your own desires. You are slave to your passions and desires. And I'm praying that this morning would be the morning that you are brought to freedom from your sin and from yourself to Christ. The only way to accomplish any of that is by His Word. His Word accomplishes all of that. And so we come every Sunday to hear from His Word because we need to hear from His Word, desperately need to hear from His Word. Will you join me as I pray? Pray for your own soul, pray for your own heart and mind this morning as I pray. Father, we come to you thanking you first and foremost for who you are. We, we know that you are the creator of all, that you are truly God, that you are real, that you exist, that you have created all things and that all things have been created for your glory. They are for you. We have been made for you. And our lives will only make sense when we are given back to that purpose, that goal, that aim of bringing glory to you. I pray that you would use your word this morning to strengthen the weak, to bring home the wandering, to provoke the lazy, and to free the lost. I pray that you would use your word to accomplish salvation for your people this morning. I pray that you would preach by your spirit a better sermon than I can preach in my best efforts. I pray by your spirit you would send forth your word to the hearts and minds of people, your people, strengthening them for this course of life that you have called them to live by faith. We pray all of this in your name for your glory. Amen. To walk by faith and not by sight. We just sung about that in a couple of those songs. To walk by faith and not by sight. This is the calling of God's people. Sometimes we think that the idea of walking by faith is not practical. What we need is answers for real life. Have you ever felt that way? 
What I need you to do, Pastor Paul, is give me some practical advice for real life, like real stuff that happens in my life. I need you to tell me what to do. I need you to tell me how to get my daughter to go to bed at night. I need you to tell me how I'm supposed to figure out who I'm going to marry. I need you to tell me how to, how to fix my finances or my marriage. On and on and on. We need practical, real-life advice. All this high church speak, this walk by faith, that's all good. I mean, we need to hear that too. It's all important. But what we really need is practical bottom shelf. Let's put the cookies down here where we can all, you know, all enjoy, right? <clears throat> the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is not good advice. It's not just good advice for how to live better. The gospel is transformational. It, it, is, it is a version of reality that God has given to us to believe in, to guide our lives by, and it is eminently practical when we apply it. When we actually understand the gospel, when we see its truth, then we can apply it to our lives. The daughter who won't go to sleep at night when she's supposed to. You know what God's doing in that? He's growing you. He's strengthening you. He's stretching you. He's growing your faith. Sometimes we would rather have the answers, the formula to get our children to do what we want them to do. We would rather have that than the strengthening of our faith, right? Give me the answer to how to potty train my son Instead of the faith answer, because that's actually what I want. I want smooth sailing. That's what I want. That's not what God is here to give us. God is not here to give us smooth sailing. He's here to grow us into Christ's likeness. That's the goal. That's the aim for his glory. This morning, as we turn to Genesis 13, this is where we're at. We're in the book of Genesis as we've gone through a series in Genesis. We come to chapter 13, and that is the theme of this chapter. Walk by faith and not by sight. Walk by faith and not by sight. Would you stand with me out of honor for God's word as I read Genesis chapter 13? I'm going to read the entire chapter. It's not very long, 18 verses. Genesis 13, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you separate yourself from me? If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes. And saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, 
Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I invite you to be seated once again. Chapter 12, last week, we saw Abram in not so positive a light. Abram, who had been given the promises of God... He was promised great blessing, to be a great nation, to be given a great name. Abram was to be, become synonymous with blessing for the entire earth. Through Abram and his family, he would bring blessing to all the families of the earth. These were the promises of God for Abram. And yet, in Genesis 12, we see Abram forget the promises He leaves the land of Canaan and he goes down to Egypt. And there he takes matters into his own hands. There he seeks a way to preserve his own life. There he actually chooses to sacrifice his wife. He sacrifices the well-being of his wife for his own well-being. Give yourself up so that it may go well with me. We see Abram act in faithlessness, unfaithful, forgetting the promises of God. We heard last week that there was a severe famine that sent Abram down to Egypt. I mean, a man's got to eat. His flocks have got to be taken care of. Makes sense, doesn't it, to go down to Egypt? There was a severe famine in the land. But we saw also last week that God preserves Abram, even when Abram is faithless, even when Abram is unfaithful, God still remains faithful to his promises. Pharaoh, who Abram has given his wife Sarai to, Pharaoh is plagued with great plagues. Pharaoh is plagued and Abram is given great riches. Abram comes back up to the land of Canaan, the Negev, the southern portion. And it says right there in verse 2, look at verse 2 in chapter 13. Abram comes up to, from Egypt to the Negev, but look at verse 2. Now Abram was very rich in livestock. That word very rich or that term very rich This is the same exact word used in chapter 12 to describe the famine. The same word. And the the interplay here is meant to communicate to the reader that God has turned great, severe famine into great riches for Abram. The Lord has turned famine into riches. Abram has been blessed beyond his imagination, even in his faithlessness, even as he is unfaithful, the Lord still blesses him. He has turned famine into riches for his chosen man, Abram. Now this is important, the experience of Abram parallels the experience of Israel. That is not accidental. The experience of Abram parallels the experience of Israel that we will see later. And this, this in fact, is the generation that is being written to. Abram, the story of Abram, Moses is writing this account to the children of Israel who have been rescued from Egypt and are now going into the promised land. That's who's reading this the first time. And so they see their history echoed in the experience of Abram. Abram goes down to Egypt, and he is rescued, he is delivered, and he is given great spoils in his deliverance. 
And this will be exactly Israel's experience. They will go down to Egypt in a great famine again. They will go down in famine. They will be enslaved there by a Pharaoh. God will send great plagues upon that Pharaoh. And that Pharaoh will give up the people. And as the people of Israel leave the land of Egypt, the people of Egypt throw their wealth at Israel. They throw their wealth at them. They give them wealth. And the people of Israel come up out of Egypt with great wealth, burdened with the gold and the silver and the riches of Egypt upon their backs. You see, this is what God does. When he delivers a people, he gives them great spoils. God will deliver his people. And when he does, he will give them great riches that they have not earned and that they have not deserved. He will give them great spoils. This is what we see as the rescue from exile takes place. God's people are put into exile because of their rebellion, the exile of Babylon, but God promises them that one day he will accomplish a salvation even greater than the Exodus, and in fact, he has. Listen, God has accomplished a salvation that is even greater than the Exodus. He has called a people forth from the enslavement of sin, from the darkness of sin. He has called a people forth out of sin, out of Egypt. He has called them. And he has delivered them by the work of his son. Jesus, the Christ, has died for their sin and been risen and delivered a people from the darkness and enslavement of sin. And with that victory, with that deliverance, he has given his people all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. He has blessed them overwhelmingly so. That's what we just sang. He is faithful. He has given us many blessings, ten thousands of blessings in Christ. We are rich. Did you know that today? Did you know that as you sit there today? You are rich. See, some of you, this is true, some of you look around at other people who are rich, even in our body. You look around at other people who like have a lot of money and you envy them. Oh, if I could just live where they live, if I could just have what they have, if I could just experience and afford the things that they can afford. Oh, if only I had some more money. Don't you see? You have everything in Christ. You are as rich as anyone else in this room if you are in Christ. You need nothing. And the more you set your heart and mind on earthly riches, the more despairing you will be because there will never be enough and it will always be going out to places and it won't come back. See, this is all about perspective, our riches that we have in Christ. The Lord has delivered us as he delivered Abram, as he delivered the people of Israel, he has delivered us in Christ and he has given us great riches. I want you to see in this chapter, the Lord has blessed Abram with his promises, with great blessing. And Abram, in this chapter, chapter 13, chooses to walk by faith and not by sight. The failure of Abram in chapter 12 will turn into the faithfulness of Abram in chapter 13. Look at it there. Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold, verse 2. Now verse 3, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and I, to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. This is the first thing I want you to see, the first truth about walking by faith. Walking by faith will require continual repentance. The life lived by faith 
is a life of ongoing repentance. Abram, here in chapter 13, returns to the Lord. He doesn't just go back up to the land. No, he goes back to the place where it all started, the the beginning. Abram, in chapter 12, has failed in faith. Horribly so. I mean, we looked at that in chapter 12. He, he is a horrible failure. He gives his wife up to another man. I said last week, you wouldn't, you wouldn't even want to eat dinner with a guy like this. You wouldn't want to associate with a man who's so callous and cowardice. Abram has failed in faith, drastically so, but this is important. Abram did not fail in faith utterly. Abram did not fail utterly. And how do we know that? Because Abram returned. He returned back to the beginning. And there, at that same altar that he had built at the very beginning, at that same altar, he worships the Lord and he calls upon the name of the Lord. Abram returns. He goes back to the beginning. You see, a life of faith, this is important, a life walking in faith is not about how often we fall, for we will fall. A life lived by faith is not a life lived free of failure or free of falling. A life lived by faith isn't about the falling, it's about the getting up and going back to the beginning and retracing your steps back to where you forgot, back to where you neglected the promises you've been given. That is a life by faith. What's keeping you this morning from beginning again. Do you know how many times we have to begin again in the life of faith? Every day we begin again. What's keeping you today from beginning again? You say, well, Pastor Paul, I, you don't know. You don't know how I have failed. I have really, really sinned. I have committed grievous sin more grievous than Abram's sin? Pastor Paul, you don't know how awful I have been. You don't know how far away I've gone. Well, I want to tell you this morning, if you think you have sinned, you think you have sinned so gravely, then I want to encourage you this morning to look. Turn your eyes as we sang Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Do you see Jesus there? Do you see his sacrifice? Do you see how awful the sacrifice of Jesus is upon the cross? Do you see the death that he dies? Do you see the payment that he pays? Do you see the price offered there? Do you see how awful that is? That is because, yes, your sin is awful, but he has paid it all. He has paid for all sin for his people. All of those who are his people, their sin is paid for. You say, well, my sin is awful. Yes, it is awful. That's why it required the cross. Do you see the grace offered you there on the cross? But that's, that's unbelievable. Yes, it's unbelievable. To walk by faith is to count the cross and the payment of Christ as sufficient, even for my terrible sin. And I hope you do see your sin as terrible. I hope you do see your sin as awful, but I hope more so you see the sufficiency of the Savior. How often we have to retrace our steps. Think of Peter. Do you remember the story of Peter? 
even in that hour when Jesus was being tried, even in that hour when Jesus was being tried and taken to the cross, even in that hour, Peter had an opportunity. Peter had an opportunity to stand up and say, yes, I am with Jesus. Yes, he is my savior. But what did Peter do in that moment? Peter failed. He failed. Three times he failed. No, I do not know the man. No, I have nothing to do with him. I tell you, I do not know him. He turned his back on Jesus. In the hour when Jesus seems to have needed him the most, right? He turned his back on the, on the Lord. But then the Lord comes back to Peter. Do you remember the story in John? He comes back to Peter. Peter's on a fishing boat going back to his trade of fishermen. And he sees a man on the shore and they say, it's the Lord. And Peter doesn't wait. He dives in and he swims back. He swims back to the Lord to get back to Jesus. And the Lord, what does the Lord do? He crosses his arms and says, I don't know. I don't know, Peter. I don't know if I'm going to take you back. I mean, come on, Peter. I needed you in that moment and you turned your back. I don't know. You're going to really have to prove it to me. No. No, Jesus says, do you love me, Peter? Yes, I love you. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, I love you. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, he, he asked Peter that question three times in a way to rebuild Peter. You denied me three times, now I'm gonna have you profess your love to me three times. And I have much usefulness for you, Peter, much usefulness for my work. Peter returns. This is the life of faith. This is why the prophets preach repentance. Why, why do the prophets preach repentance? Because repentance is available. Repentance and restoration is possible. Why, why does Pastor Paul get up and, and preach? Every, because it's possible to return to the Lord. It's possible to be saved this morning. If you were here this morning, you are not too far away for his salvation. His arm is not shortened that it cannot save. I had a professor when I was in college, Dr. Dan Rushing. This is a long time ago in college. I, remember, I don't remember much that I learned in college, and I'm thankful for that, honestly. But I, I remember sitting there in his class. He was, he was one of those professors that had an impact in a lot of ways, more about how he lived than anything else, more about how he lived than how he taught. But I remember him saying one time to me, and I needed this word at that moment. He, he said to all of us, he said, listen, listen, everybody listen. As long as there is breath in your body, there is opportunity to repent. As long as you have breath in your body and the heartbeat is still going, you have an opportunity to repent and return and to be restored. And this is what Abram does. In this chapter, Abram was now a man committed to the promises of God and to God's sovereign superintendence over his life. Now, Abram isn't done struggling. He isn't done wrestling. We're going to see that in the, in the next few chapters. He's not done struggling and wrestling over God's promises and his circumstances. But here in this chapter, we see Abram on the heels of failure, return and embrace, re-embrace God's promises to him. Here, for us, he is an example of faith. This section begins and ends with worship. This is how we are to read it. Abram is faithful here in this chapter. He worships in the land that God had given him. But this faith, this recently recovered faith, is going to be tested here in chapter 13. Abram's recently recovered faith in God's promises is going to have an opportunity to be demonstrated through yet another threat. There will be a threat here in chapter 13. I want you to see it there. Look at it, verse five. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. As a result of Abram and his great wealth, this creates tension and strife with Lot. 
There's not enough room. Here's the, here's the point boiled down. There's not enough room for both Abram and Lot to coexist. This is compounded by the fact that the Canaanites and the Perizzites are still in the land. In other words, the presence of this growing group of people and their flocks, all the result of God's commitment to bless Abram and his family, this overabundance of blessing is creating tension. There's not enough room. This growing group of people is bringing with it strife and tension, unwanted strife. This is not the first time we've seen strife in the story of Genesis, is it? Have we seen strife in other places? Absolutely. What's the, what's the most notable place where we've seen strife between brothers? Cain and Abel, right? Cain and Abel are brothers, and yet they cannot live together. They cannot coexist, right? One kills the other. In the fallen world of sin, this is the reality. The days of Noah also were filled with violence, so much so that God has to move to enact the universal laws to protect his promises, the universal laws that require men to not kill one another. Why, why, why do those laws have to exist? That's because men are murderous in their hearts. So I want you to, I want you to get this. The test of faith for Abram here is about strife. How is he going to handle strife, discord, disunity? I don't want you to see this as well. Strife, as we've seen in this story to this point, strife should not surprise us. Strife should not surprise us. Even the strife, even the strife between family members Some of you think that you're the only ones that struggle with your family members. I, I, I get the unique experience to some degree of being able to sit with a lot of different people. Can I just tell you that as I sit with a lot of different people and I talk with a lot of different people, there's a whole lot of strife with family members that goes on. Extended family and nuclear family, a whole lot of strife. We should not be surprised by this. We should not be surprised that it is hard to get along. Even strife in the family of promise, even strife in the church. Should we be surprised by strife and discord in the church? We should not be surprised by that. This is the reality of living in a sinful world with sinful people. Strife, get this, I even have it bolded. I even have it bolded in my, in my notes. Strife is unavoidable. It's unavoidable. If you think there's a place where you can live where all the seas will be calm and there will not be any strife for your life, you are kidding yourself. Strife is unavoidable. But the people who walk by faith, the people who walk by faith live in ongoing repentance, returning to the Lord. The people who walk by faith, they pursue peace in the midst of strife. That's what God's people do. You and I should not be surprised by conflict in our marriage, in our homes, among siblings, with our coworkers. We should not be surprised wherever we find strife, it is lurking everywhere. It's not a question of if, but when. Do you know that this is why I don't, I don't watch reality TV. At some point, I may have watched reality TV, but I can tell you this is what they do. Have you ever seen one of those reality TV shows where they take like 20 strangers and they put all of them in one house with cameras? Have you ever seen that? Do you know why they do that? Because they know what will happen when they take 20 people and put them in one house together. That's why they put cameras there. And they know people will watch it. Why? Because they get it. There's going to be a whole lot of drama and that's what you want to watch, isn't it? Oh, I want to watch that. See, it's, it's, a, it's a given. There will be strife. There will be drama. Don't be surprised by it. Well, how is Abram going to respond? Now, you, you and I, as we're reading this, and I, I'm afraid this is not what happens. When you and I are reading the Bible story, we're supposed to be absorbed in it. 
Like we're supposed to be absorbed. Nothing drives me crazier than when people read something, they're not absorbed. They're like, this is a real story and the drama of it. You could cut it with a knife, right? What's going to happen? There's conflict. How's Abram going to respond? Is he going to be like Cain? Is he going to pick up his rock and bash in Lot's head? What's going to happen? Well, Abram's response is insightful given this drama And it demonstrates a transformation in his faith from Genesis chapter 12 now to chapter 13. Listen to his response. Listen to his response to the strife. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. For we are kinsmen. That's the word brothers. For we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And I want, you to, I want you to see how Abram responds to this strife. First, I want you to notice that Abram wants peace. Abram is committed here in this situation to peace. I'm going to pursue peace. And he appeals to the fact that they are both brothers as the desire for peace. We're brothers, Lot. We should not be at each other. I want peace with you. Let's pursue peace. Second, He puts the whole situation in the hands of the Lord. He puts the whole situation in the hands of the Lord. Now, at this point, there's some debate with commentators. Some some commentators think Abram's being careless. How careless could he be with the land? I mean, what if Lot chooses the the land of Canaan? Is is he ready? Is he offering up the, the land? No, no. See, in chapter 12, he sacrifices Sarai for his own well-being. But here, here, he is handing it over to the Lord. He is trusting in the Lord. I think the immediate context of chapter 12 is instructive for us. Abram, in chapter 12, took matters into his own hands. And here, in chapter 13, he is not going to take matters into his own hands. In chapter 12, he looks at the threatening situation and he's willing to sacrifice his wife and her and with her the promise of offspring for the sake of his own survival. But now, Abram takes his hands off. He has, get this, he has the right as Abram, he is the patriarch, he has the right to make demands upon Lot. He has the right to make demands. But instead, Abram gives up his rights and allows Lot to make the first choice. Some think he's endangering the promise. I think the opposite. Because he trusts in the Lord, the Lord's sovereign superintendence over all things. Abram has grown to understand that the Lord is in control and the promises of God are invincible. In other words, the Lord will do right by Abram. Do you know that? Here, I said earlier, All of you are rich. If you are in Christ, you have riches. Listen carefully. If you are in Christ, the Lord is committed at all times, 24-7, to do right by you. He is always going to do right by you. Remember that. As you have unwanted strife or unwanted circumstance, remember the Lord is always going to do right by you. Always. He's made you promises in Christ. It may not be what you think. It may not be how you want, but he is doing right by you. How often we look more at what we don't have or what we want instead of what we've been given. When we look at what we've been given, this, this will overwhelm us. The things that we want and have set our heart on will seem trivial and small. We see Scripture's emphasis all the way through the Bible, right, on being a peacemaker, don't we? God's people are to be peacemakers. Psalm 133, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. 
Oh, how blessed it is and pleasant it is when the brothers dwell in unity. Listen to Romans 12. Live in harmony with one another. I, I love Romans 12. Listen to it. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This is how God's people live and are called to live. This is how those who walk by faith seek to live. We make peace. And there is great promise with those who make peace. Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Those who walk by faith make peace with others. We pursue peace at all costs. Whether we have to give up our rights, we have to humble ourselves, we have to give up what we want, we are willing to pursue peace no matter what it costs us, oftentimes. See, those who have peace with God, Romans 5, those who have peace with God, as Romans 5 tells us, those who have peace with God make war against our sin because we're at peace with God. Those who are at peace with God make war against our sin and we pursue peace with others. That is the character of those who walk by faith or should be. Abram's renewed faith in God's promises allows him to give up his rights. God will not do wrong by Abram, even if someone else does him wrong. Abram here is not careless, but he is at rest in the promises of God. Can I just ask you very simply, why are you not at rest? Why are you not at rest this morning? We are not at rest. Here it is. We are not at rest when we value or desire or demand something that we have placed over as more important to us than what God has given us in Christ. If you have placed something as a ruling desire over your life, something more important, valuable to you than what you've been given in Christ, if you place it up, then you are not at rest. You are in angst and probably in strife. That's the way it works. What other value or desire or demand has made resting in God's promises seem trite or irrelevant to you? So, as a summary here of that one point, expect strife. Expect it. Do not be surprised by it. Desire peace and pursue it as much as you are able. Be willing, we're able to give up your rights for the sake of peace. In order to rest, you will have to have a big view of God and his promises. His promises will have to mean more to you than getting your way. That's the way we pursue peace. And then with this, understand that peace, as we see here in Genesis 13, peace, while always the ideal is not always possible, but be assured, as you have pursued peace as much as you are able, be assured, God's promises in Christ will not fail. They never will fail. So what will be the result then of Abram's relinquishing of his rights? One point I mentioned or failed to mention, I waited to mention until this point in the, in the text, is the name of the two places bordering their position. They're there between Bethel and I. Bethel and I. When Abram says, choose one way lot and I will go the other, the names of the two towns become important. That's what he's saying. Lot, choose which way you're going to go. Remember the, the two names, Bethel and I. Choose which way you're going to go. Lot, if you choose to go to Bethel, I'll go to I. Lot, you choose to go to I, I'm going to go to Bethel. Well, Bethel is to the west. And if you've been here with us in Genesis, you know the this, this significance there. West is symbolically towards the Lord. 
east is away from the Lord, away from his presence. My own son, my four-year-old, he's like, don't go east. You don't want to go east. Don't go east. He's learned something. At least that's good. Well, to the west stands Bethel. What does Bethel mean? The name Bethel means house of God. To the east stands I, which is actually how you're supposed to pronounce it. Most people say AI. Interesting, it's called AI. No? To the east, AI. Anyway. To the east stands I, which literally means ruin. So here he is between two places the house of God or ruin. Which way are you going to go, Lot? I'll go the other. Look at what, what Lot does. And Lot, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So get this, very quickly, Lot's choice is governed by his eyes. Lot's choice is governed by his eyes, what he sees physically. Now this is parallel to the first sin of Eve. Remember Eve? Eve saw the fruit. She, she saw the tree and it was pleasant and it was desirable to make one wise. She saw, she took, she ate, she fell. And this is what Lot does. He sees. The eyes are synonymous with desire. Lot looks east and sees a fertile valley, the Jordan Valley, a place that from his perspective looks like the Garden of Eden. Look out there, that's like the Garden of Eden. Interesting, interestingly enough, he actually thinks it also looks like Egypt in the fertile Nile Valley of Egypt. There's an abundance of water and green. And he's got flocks and he's got a family. Of course, of course he's going to go take the fertile valley, right? What else would you choose? What fool wouldn't choose the green grass? Oh, it's always green on the other side of the fence, isn't it? What, what fool wouldn't choose the green grass? But the text tells us and the original readers that Lot's choice is death. You see all the little hints that it gives us there? You see the note that Lot journeys east, away from the Lord and life and blessing? What do you mean? That's fertile valley. That's life and blessing out there. That's like the garden of the Lord. That's like Egypt. That's the good life. I want to go, I want to go where the good life is. But he goes away from the Lord, who is life and blessing. He also settles among the cities of the valley as far as Sodom cities. We've, we've seen this in the text to this point in Genesis. Should be an alarm bell going off as we're reading the cities of man build in their pride and arrogance and rebellion. And then you have the note very clearly about the inhabitants of Sodom. These are wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Lot chooses what his eyes tell him is best, wisest, and most beneficial. That's what he chooses. He chooses based on his eyes. Lot desires the good life. But as the parenthetical note tells us, do you see that? There's a little parenthesis there in verse number 10. He chooses what he thinks is the good life, but this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot desires the good life, the land that seems fertile, but this land that seems fertile will all be turned to ash. It will all be burned. It will all cease to exist. Lot chooses unwisely. Lot's choice was materially prosperous. Oh, hear this, people. Lot's choice was materially prosperous, yet morally degrading. J.C. Ryle, in his book on holiness, we have it back there, actually we don't because now it's in my office, but I'm going to bring it back up there and put it. J.C. Ryle, in his book on holiness, he has a whole chapter on Lot. 
and he warns the readers, beware Lot's choice. Beware Lot's choice. Lot chose by sight, and this proved to be a poor choice. Can I ask you just a simple question? When you're, when you're making decisions, when you're navigating life, when you're, when you're choosing your course, when you're, when you're making choices about your life, what is it that shapes those decisions? What is it that founds those decisions? Is it financial gain? The job that makes more money? The house that is a bit nicer? What is it that shapes those decisions? Is there any concern given to the soul and the well-being of your soul and the, the spiritual health of your family? Is there, any, is there any decision given to that? Because Lot, he chose based on what anybody else would choose, right? And this is the point. God's people do not choose the way the world chooses. We don't have the same priorities. I'm telling you what, I'm, I'm going to be careful here because I don't want to distract. Some of you look at social media so much and you, you're taking in just a stream of consciousness from the world and it's screaming at you. It's screaming at you, this is the good life. This is what you need. This is what you have to have. Come on, take it, take it, take it. And you are dissatisfied because you're looking out here, what everybody else has. You're like, if my life, if God really cared about me, this is what I would have. No. No, see, you're lying to yourself. And, and, and it's to the point where you need to take that little device that you look at for hours a day and you need to put it away. You need to get rid of it. You need to give it to somebody that you, you know loves you. And you say, please don't give this back to me until I get my head right. Because I can't think clearly. I'm looking at the Fertile Valley and I think that's where life is. And I'm not listening to the Lord. What the Lord has clearly said in his word. This is where so many of us live. God's people do not value things the way the world values them. <laughs> How often we make a choice that makes sense on paper, but we are sacrificing our holiness. We are sacrificing the spiritual health of our home. We are sacrificing. Whether it's a job we choose, a relationship we choose, the friends we choose. Calvin Regarding Lot, says this, Lot, when he fancied he was living in paradise, was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. I was thinking this week, how, how, is, how is the high school girl, how is the 14, 15, 16-year-old girl, how is she supposed to navigate life? Who, she has professed Christ, but she is in the midst of a school where everybody around her values everything materially, sensually, She's bombarded with it every day. How is she going to survive? As she's offered choices, decisions, she has to make decisions. Who are my friends going to be? Where am I going to go? What am I going to participate in? She's told over and over and over again, your life doesn't mean anything unless you have a relationship with somebody, unless you have a boyfriend. Unless, unless you have some kind of romantic interest. Everything she, everything she hears tells her that. a lie, isn't it? But she doesn't know that. She looks over and it's a fertile valley and she thinks that's going to bring her happiness because that's what everybody else says around her. How is she going to survive? She must cling to the clear word of the Lord. See, walking by faith means that we don't walk by sight. And we take everything and examine it by what the Word of God says. Does the purity of God and His holiness, does that matter to you? And how you make your decisions and where you go and what you look at. The job that you choose. The hobbies that you partake in. Does the name of Jesus mean more to you 
than anything else that offers life. Abram here is contrasted with Lot. As Lot lifted up his eyes to fill them with temporal desires, Abram is told by God, did you see the the contrast there? Lot lifts up his eyes, but now Abram is told to lift up your eyes, Abram. Lift up your eyes. Abram is told by God to lift up his eyes and put them upon the land. Do you see this? Abram's eyes are directed by the word of the Lord. Look here, Abram. Lift up your eyes and look, Abram, at what I have given you. Look at what I intend to give you. Look at it. It's yours. It's all yours. Arise. Walk through the land. In effect, you know what he's telling him in effect? Take it for a test drive, Abram. Here's the keys for your land. Take it for a test drive. It's yours. Not only that, but I am going to take your offspring and I'm going to give this land to your offspring forever. What a contrast with the temporal values of Lot. He says, forever, Abram, this land will be yours and belong to your offspring. And about that offspring, I'm going to take that offspring and I'm going to make them like the dust of the earth. Can you number the dust of the earth? Can you number it all? No, is the answer. No, I can't number all the dust of the earth. Exactly. I'm going to make your offspring like the dust of the earth. It's going to be so great you're not even going to be able to count it. The promises made back in chapter 12 are expanded upon and even made more explicit. We're going to see that as we continue to walk through the story. The promises are going to grow and become more and more amazing as we walk through the story. So here's the point again. Abram walks by faith in what God has said and not by sight. God's intentions for his people go far beyond what can be seen in the immediate. Walking by faith means that we make our decisions, measure our worth and purpose, make our identity out of that which is unseen. But notice... I said unseen, not unknown. For God has spoken clearly in his precious word. He has spoken to us by his son. God's people live by faith in the son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. I want to read you short passage in 2 Corinthians. This ought to be underlined for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Listen to these words. So we, that is God's people, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, that is our physical self. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not, look at this, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And then chapter five, verse seven, verse six. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We gave all these hymnals to our members. I'm hoping that you've been reading. I've heard some people have been reading. We're going to sing this song in just a moment. This is a prayer. This is a prayer that is a response even to what we've heard this morning. Listen to this prayer. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me save that thou art. Thou, my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. Be thou my wisdom and thou my true word. I ever with thee and thou with me, Lord. 
Thou, my great Father, I, thy true Son, thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. Listen to this. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou, mine inheritance, now and always. Can you, can you sing that and pray that and mean that? Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou, mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Walk by faith, faith in the Son of God, who loved you and gave himself for you. Father, we thank you for this word, for Genesis 13. We thank you for your mercy to us, your grace to us. As you admonish us, as you convict us, as you encourage us, we have riches beyond our imagination in Christ, riches that are eternal, unseen, yes, unseen for now, but they will be seen, and we know that. I pray that you would help our unbelief. And I pray for those who are here this morning who have counted as little the sacrifice of Jesus. Maybe to them this is all fairy tales. I pray that, Lord, you would, in their heart and soul, in their mind right now, that you would convince them of the truth of this, for they know it is true. And that they would, in desperation, put their hope in Jesus and Jesus alone, his sacrifice and his resurrection for their salvation, and that today he would be their Lord. He would be, Christ, you would be their greatest treasure. We pray all of this for your sake, in your name. Amen.